I, uh, it's really good to be with you tonight. I, um, we just read that last verse, verse 14 there. It says, put, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What a, what a powerful verse. Uh, why don't you pray with me and we'll get started. Father God, we thank you that you've brought us into this place, God. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear your word now, Lord, that we might know you more, that we might be changed from the inside out. God, you've called us to a life, but that life is filled with you. It's not a life under our strength or our power, but through you and in you. So God, be our strength today. Be our wisdom today, Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's play a little game real quick. Uh, I'm going to give you a kind of a a wardrobe, and you're going to tell me the event or events that you would wear that wardrobe to. Okay? Some of these could have multiple answers, so it's going to be fun. A suit. Someone tell me what you wear a suit to. Prom. I like prom. What's that? A wedding. A wedding. Nice. I wore tuxedos to prom and weddings. Is, it, is that, am I weird? Is that, is that a new thing? You wear suits now. Okay. All right. Uh, what about a, um, uh, what about a uh, hockey jersey? A hockey game. Right? All right. Some of you are like class on Monday morning. But all right. What about a, um, what about a, uh, like a sports uniform, say like a baseball jersey or something like that. Like you're all spectators. You're all saying like going to a baseball game, but like, did any of y'all play any sports? Like you were that? You'd go play baseball, right? Right. What about a tuxedo? See, that, that was the one I was waiting for the everything else. I wore a tuxedo for my senior recital in voice. Yes, I was that guy. So I also wore it for everything else, but... So the only, the only real uniforms that I ever wore, you're going to like this, the only two like, uniforms I really wore, uh, the first one was a karate gi. Yes, I took karate when I was a kid. Now, you may or not, may not believe this, but it's true. I'm sure it's a heart attack. My uncle is a legit like, karate master. Like, he's like Chuck Norris, y'all. Like, I'm not playing. He is a mix between Chuck Norris and um, Steven Seagal. Do y'all know who Steven Seagal is? glorious ponytail. Come on. He like flips people just by touching them. It's really weird. Um, So like he did all that stuff, right? And you know, like when you're on the playground, you're always saying to your friends like, well, my uncle could beat up your uncle or my daddy could beat up your daddy. My uncle really could beat up your uncle. Like hands down, he really could. So when I was a kid, I, he got, he kind of got me involved in karate. And so I wore a karate gi, that is what it was called. And um, I would put that on and then go obviously go do karate, right? And then the, only, the other uniform that I used to wear it was a baseball uniform. Since the time I was five years old all the way through high school, I played baseball every year. So it was a big part of my life. And, and so the things that we kind of put on, the things that we wear, kind of determine what we do in those things, right? Um, here's another one. What about a bathing suit? Hopefully you're not going to class. Uh, hopefully you're not playing baseball. <laughs> that would hurt, right? Um, and, you're, and you're also not going to put on a suit. You're not going to put on a tuxedo and then go swimming, right? So the things that we put on, literally like the uniforms that we wear, the clothes that we wear, kind of determine the actions for which that we, while we have that on, correct? So what I kind of want to pull your attention to tonight is this verse 14. But put on, like this word is, is the same word as like clothe yourself, 
put on Christ. Do not make any provision for the flesh, but put on Christ instead. So what does this mean? Paul uses this phrase many, many, many times throughout all of his letters. Half of the New Testament is written by this one man. And almost in every one of his epistles, he has this concept of putting on Christ. Most of the times it's actually coupled with the idea of take off sin. Like put off the flesh and put on Christ. So what does it mean? Apparently it's a big deal to Paul. Apparently it's the kind of the summation, the end of this entire passage. So how are we to put on Christ? My focus tonight is I want to talk to you about the dynamic of life in the flesh as opposed to the dynamic of life in Christ. Both of these have a natural posture in which we interact with the world around us. So two weeks ago, Tim talked to you we, uh, in Romans chapter 12, if you were here. And Paul kind of starts this string where he is talking through um, how the believer is to interact with, first of all, God. We see that at the beginning of chapter 12, if you were just kind of skim through that. How the, inter- how the believer interacts with God and then how the believer interacts with himself, like his own self-awareness that do not consider yourself more highly than you are, right? And then how that believer interacts with one another, other people. And then how that believer reacts and interacts with his enemy, right? And then here in chapter 13, he continues this to kind of broaden the sphere of influence and say how we are to posture ourselves and interact with society as a whole. We've been called to interact with society as a whole. We live in cities. We live in cultures. We live with people. And sometimes people suck. But there's still people, right? So what do you do? There's a way in which we put on Christ and interact with a specific posture. And the posture that Paul is calling us to, the posture that the gospel leads us to, that God has called us to, stands opposed to the posture of the flesh. So how do we get there? What what does that look like? This passage that we're going to dissect here in just a minute is very practical in many ways, especially for all of you. All of you are 18, and this is an election year. It's going to be very practical, but this passage isn't necessarily about the list. It's not a list of behaviors, or it's, it's not necessarily about exactly what you should do or don't do in the public square, except instead it is a... It's a passage about a life, the implication of a life of a believer, someone who is putting on Christ. Because you see, for the believer, there is a new posture of humility and sacrifice. It stands opposed, as we just said, it stands opposed to the posture of the flesh. And it's defined by Jesus. It's not defined by anything else. It's defined by the very person of Jesus. So the four things we're going to hit real quick. Number one, we're going to hit the pos- this posture that we've called, been called to is a posture of humility. It's a posture of humility, sacrificial love. You can kind of wrap it up with Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, 3, where he says, the kingdom citizen is one who is poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. That is, in definition, someone who does not consider himself more highly than he ought. Romans 12, 3, right? Three and four. 
So it's a posture of humility. Second, it's a posture that is opposed to the flesh and is motivated by love. Third, it is a posture defined by Jesus himself. And then number four, this is a posture that keeps an eternal perspective on our lives. So we're going to walk through those things. Read with me verse one again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to, do, to, to good conduct, but to bad conduct. How many of y'all have rolled up next to a cop at a red light and been like, Ugh! I mean, you hadn't done anything wrong that day. You hadn't, like, you hadn't hit anybody. You hadn't um, stolen anything. You haven't, uh, apparently Parker hit somebody, but you don't have to, like, right? You haven't done anything. You haven't evaded taxes. You haven't done anything. But as, as soon as you see that cop roll up, what do you start doing? You're like 10 and 2, seatbelts on tight. You're like rolling your windows up. You're turning your radio down. Anyone else there? Am I? Or I just have a guilty conscience. Am I the only one? No, I'm not the only one. You're like, okay, that dude is staring at me. I'm going down. For what? I have no idea, but I'm going down, right? It's because we're all sinners. That's why. So verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to, do good, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. If you don't do anything bad, you got nothing to fear. Sounds like my dad. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of, for, of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So if we were to put on Christ, we, are, we immediately see that this putting on of Christ is a posture of humility with, as Paul, like I just said, as Paul in chapter 13 is in connection or in interaction with society as a whole. And there's governing societies in the world, right? And there's laws in the world. And he gives us a couple of reasons why we are to take a posture of obedience or of submission towards these authorities. Number one, because they're worthy of it? No. It's not necessarily because they are worthy of it or that they are perfect or that they are the kingdom of God incarnate in the flesh here today, right? That's not the reason. But the reason is because all governing authorities all earthly authority is a general grace of God for us to help govern us. Does that make sense? You see, they're not worthy of it necessarily, but they were created by God as a general means of grace to promote peace and prosperity. And then in verses 3 through 5, you see that it is a God-ordained way to hold people accountable to their actions. Without the, threat of punishment, but, um, without the threat of punishment, human self-interest would make society almost impossible, right? We don't have rules of the land and laws of the land just so that the popo can be high and mighty, right? 
No, they exist to hold us accountable. They are a general grace that God has ordained in the world so that we might actually interact in a society that can thrive with peace and prosperity. They are an extension of his good grace, his good rule in the world. It's like Jesus says, uh, uh, um, God makes it rain on the good and the evil, right? There's a general grace in the world, and this is obviously one of them. Uh, we all kind of know this. You don't fight in school, right? There's repercussions for when you fight in school. Has anyone been in a fight in school? All right. <laughs> someone was coughing on that. So I got in one fight in school, right? And my mom don't care. She said, you're moving with your uncle. No, I'm just playing. Uh, y'all don't even know that show. You weren't even born yet. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, so anyway, I got in one fight in school when I was in school. I was a senior. I almost made it out without ever getting in a fight. And literally, this is what the fight was. A guy wanted water, and I was standing in line for the thing, and he just, he like, I think you have a story just like this. Waiting in line? Yeah. Uh, waiting in line to get to the water fountain, and this dude just kind of pushes me and, and gets water before me. And I'm like, no, right? And so I, this, is, this is what happens. I like stomp the ground. That was the extent of the fight. Like I literally stomped the ground, but as I stomped the ground and like kind of come at him a little bit, I step on his toe. Hey guys, Jesus isn't done with me yet, right? I had some anger issues, it's fine. But like I got in his face and so that was my fight, right? I was the kid who never got in a fight because I was so scared of being in trouble. See, I don't know about your high school, but in my high school, just in 2000, 2001, they still paddled. They do that in your high school? No, you go to jail for that now, right? But they still paddled. And the teacher that caught me was the football coach. And this dude was easily 300 pounds, solid muscle, but he had a reputation. He had a reputation of taking people out into the hallway for a paddling um, and telling them to get ready and everything else and swinging it back and then coming down and hitting the sole of his shoe. So everyone on the inside of the class hears, right? And it's like, oh, Coach Thomas just gave it. But nothing actually really happened, right? So I'm like praying that the rumors are true. The rumors were not true. I didn't know skin could turn that color of purple. But like, so I was scared to death to get in trouble. That's my one experience. Like, I don't want to get in trouble, right? I don't want to get in trouble because I'm afraid of punishment. Because we know there's these authorities. If you do something wrong, there is repercussions of that, right? We, we kind of get that. But the interesting thing is that Paul actually brings it back and he says, I don't want you to just obey the authorities. We're not called to just submit to the authorities at the risk of punishment, but for the sake of conscience as well. You see, if our motivation is to escape punishment, we're still serving ourself. We're still living in self-interest. It's not out of love and respect and humility and care for someone else. It's still serving my interest because as soon as the threat of punishment goes away, so does my obedience. You tracking? Guys, we do the same thing with God. If we're honest... Some of us pursue God because we're so scared of the punishment of hell. We don't pursue God for God's sake. 
And as soon as that punishment gets lifted or as soon as um, the rumors may not be true or whatever happens, you, you read a Rob Bell book or whatever, like your obedience immediately is just gone, right? Why? Because you weren't after God. You weren't living out of a heart of love. Obedience wasn't the fruit of a heart that is putting on Christ in humility and submission. It's a heart that doesn't want to get in trouble. Guys, that doesn't take new birth. It doesn't take new birth to not want to to not want to get in trouble. But a life in submission, a life in um, humility is a life that is putting on Christ to the point that I want to serve, I want to humble myself for the good of the other person. It's not self-gratifying. It's not self-preservation. So a fourth reason is that it's fair. We see that in verses 6 and 7. It's fair. Government agencies do their part, and we should do our part. So we pay taxes. The implication of this is that we are called to participate in the public sphere. We are called, as Christians, to participate in the public sphere. Now, when I was your age, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with politics, right? Absolutely nothing. But we are called, as believers... To not dive completely in, but also to not separate ourselves. And it's an election year. We have the opportunity to take part in civil life, right? The corporate life of our culture, of our cities, of our nation. And use what we have, a vote, to direct the way in which we feel that God wants this country to go. We have to step up to that responsibility. The problem with this is that the natural pushback that you're going to give me and that you're thinking of right now is, but when is it okay to rebel? When is it okay to say, I can't vote for that guy, and if that guy gets elected, I'm moving to Canada? Right? When is it okay? One thing that we need to talk about is what we're trying to do there is we're trying to define the line, and we can't really do that. We're trying to put a hard line of like, this is acceptable, this is not, and if this happens, like I'm gone, right? It's just all out rebellion. But that's not necessarily the case. It's not the healthiest thing to do. The other thing we need to remember is that what Paul is talking about here is the rule, not the exception. Does that make sense? Are there exceptions? Absolutely. But they take the full diet of scripture to walk through not one passage. Does that make sense? And you'll walk, we walk with, through humility, through, with the Spirit, through the Scriptures to be able to help us with that. But Paul here is talking about the rule and not the exception. So we can't really dive into this, but I'll, I'll say this really quickly. So what we know from Scripture is that when is it acceptable for a believer to stand against governing authorities, Right? That could get very hairy really quick. And Kevin is here to answer all of your questions after the service. But let me say this. When obedience to the land causes you to be disobedient to God, that's a red flag. When submission to the authority of the land causes you to be unsubmissive to Jesus as Lord over your life, that's a red flag. Does that make sense? We see throughout Scripture Um, several times where um, believers or people of God rebelled against the governing authorities. Uh, Daniel is a good good illustration of this. 
Jesus in the temple is also a good illustration of this. But what I want to show you, though, is that they were always humble. They were always looking out for the poor and the weak in their submission. It, what, what I'm saying is it wasn't about, you can't do that to me. I'm going to go all out, right? It's it's not that. It's never that in Scripture. It's not, how dare you do that to me and my rights? No, it's, how dare you do that to the least of these? It's protection. It's love for someone else. It's surrender and submission and humility. Daniel says, that's fine, but you're going to have to kill me. I'm not bowing down. Right? So we need to walk through that really carefully. But is there an exception? There are exceptions. But what Paul is getting at here is that he wants us to see the posture of a believer, someone who is putting on Christ in regards to the society as a whole. And in regards to that, we interact. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And when obedience to the land causes us to be disobedient to the word of God, that would be your red flag. So number one, it's a posture of humility. Number two, it's a posture that is opposed to the flesh and is motivated by love. Read with me in verse eight. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the love for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, it is opposed to the flesh and it is motivated by love. What do I mean that it's opposed to the flesh? You see, for the believer, obedience to God's law always looks like love. Have you ever thought about that? I think sometimes, at least for me, and I'm a recovering legalist, so we've talked about this a lot in Sunday school and stuff. Like, I... I, I view God's law as a checklist. I don't view God's law as a a guide to love, right? But that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. Have you ever realized that? So let's walk through these, right? So so he just, I mean, he's just busting out the Ten Commandments here, right? So the first one he says is adultery. Is is this just a principle in life that God is just kind of holding over us? Or is this something that is actually a guidepost to love, to help us, a roadmap to help us love someone else? You see, what is adultery? Well, first of all, it's wanting what's not yours. It it is seeking self-gratification, self-pleasure. It dehumanizes another man's wife, right? For your pleasure. Is that loving? No, it's all about you. It also dehumanizes the husband, It makes him an obstacle to your pleasure. We see this in David with Bathsheba. He killed her husband for his self. You see, the the law about do not commit adultery is not just about some random rule that God wants to see if you can pass the test on. No, it's about loving other people. What about murder? Is it loving to murder somebody? Probably not. But what exactly is that? It's saying, I have the right to live more than you have the right to live. What about stealing? Stealing is kind of the same thing as as adultery, except for um, instead of a a physical pleasure, it's for a materialistic pleasure. 
It says, I have more right to own that thing than you do. And I'm going to take it because it's going to make me happy. Is it thinking of the other person? Is it regarding the other person as better than yourself? No. So you see how the end of the law, the purpose of the law, is so that we might love our neighbor as ourself. That's why it is summed up with those words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to the neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, the posture of the flesh, guys, the posture of the flesh is always turned in on itself. I read somewhere where Martin Luther used to call it, we, like, he called us perpetual navel gazers. I just kind of like that, right? Because what? You're just, look, you just, it's just right here. Your eyes are always in. Your eyes are always in. Your eyes are always in. In Luke chapter 18, when Jesus talks about the, the tax collector uh, and, and the Pharisee going up to the temple, he says, and he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves for justification and looked out onto others with contempt. You see, that is the always the natural response. If you look inward, if you are a perpetual navel gazer, we are selfish in everything that we do. We will always look out with contempt. You are an obstacle to my joy and I must destroy you. You see, the heart that we've been called to, the posture that we've been called to, the posture that we were created for is a posture that says, you are more important than me. I laid down my desires. I laid down my life for your good. Do you, ever, do you love somebody like that? Have you ever experienced a love that intense? Um, I tell my daughters all the time, as you all know, I've got um, I have three kids now, but I have a five-year-old and a four-year-old, both girls, and I tell them all the time when they get in arguments, most of them are over a toy or food or something, an iPad. You know, The first thing I tell them is, whose iPad is that? Daddy's iPad. That ain't your iPad, right? It's daddy's toy, and I like to play with it. No. But I tell them all the time, I say, God, I say, Grayson, love your sister more than yourself. Love your sister more than the toy. You see, all she wants is that toy. That toy is going to make her happy, and she's fighting for her own pleasure, her own joy. But if she loves her sister more than the toy, she'll willingly give up the toy. Because what's most important to her is her sister. Does that make sense? This is the kind of posture that God has called us to. This is the kind of posture that we were created to have. You see, the problem is, as college students, guys, this is the most selfish time of your life. You get to set your own schedule. You get to eat what you want to eat, when you want to eat it. You get to sleep when you want to sleep. You don't have to really answer anybody. Mom and dad is back home. They don't really know what's going on. Right? It's all about you. I got to make the right grades. I got to stay. I got to take care of myself. I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to. I, 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 I. And the fact of the matter is, like, you're probably stuck in this perpetual navel gazing season right now. Some of us are even pursuing religion and Christianity solely for personal gain. It's all about, there is no love for God and neighbor. It's only about self-preservation. 
Because this posture that we're talking about here, this heart that loves others is more important than ourselves, is absolutely and utterly impossible in our natural flesh. You know it, I know it. Even when I love, even when I pour myself out, I, how many times have you done something and said, I feel good about this? Or I, um, I'm doing this so that I can check a box. You see, we don't need better behavior. Millions of people are generous all the time. They give way more money than you and I ever will. They do way more things, but they still are doing it for a personal checklist, for a selfish reason. We don't need better better social reform. Corporate flesh is corporate selfishness. And no program's going to fix that. We were created to love God and to love our neighbor, guys. That's why we were created. We were created to have the priorities of God, neighbor, and then self. And in our sin, we have completely reversed it. We put ourself first, we use our neighbor for ourself, and then God is a very distant third if he's even in the picture. Sin completely turns us in on ourselves, but we were created to live out. And no law can produce this love within us. We need a savior who can take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, put in his heart within us. We need to see a love so beautiful, so pure, so sacrificial that it changes us from the inside out just by beholding it. And there is one who did live or did did love in this way. You see, the reason that God calls us to this posture, the reason that God created us to love God and to love our neighbor before ourselves is because it is in his very nature to love in that way. Since before the foundation of the world was ever laid, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were constantly giving themselves and adoring one another. Not themselves. The Father is constantly pouring out blessing and love and adoration and taking pleasure in the Son. And the Son has from eternity's past been taking pleasure in the Father, pouring out love one another. You see, God didn't create you and me out of some deficit. He didn't need love. But if he didn't need love, why did he create us? He didn't create us to get love. He created us to give love. To give pleasure in himself. You see, we were created for this purpose because it is the very nature of our creator. This is how he loves. And that brings us to our third point. It's a posture defined by the person of Jesus. In our sin, we are absolutely incapable of producing this love within us. But this is precisely the way that Jesus has loved us. Fully. Sacrificially. Our culture defines submission as something that's actually not good. It's taboo to submit because our culture defines success as raising up. But God defines success as lowering yourself down. 
The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that's exactly what Jesus has come and done. He fulfilled the law in our place because he loved us fully. So those same laws that Paul has brought up for us, you see, Jesus never sought his own pleasure over you and I. He actually laid aside his pleasure, Philippians 2 tells us. He laid aside his glory so that you and I could have the pleasure of a relationship with God. You see, as a rightful enemy of God, God, Jesus has every right to murder me. For the wages of sin is death. And yet, in his love, he died so that I could live. And stealing, what about stealing? Jesus doesn't take anything from me, even though he is the rightful heir over everything that I own. He actually promises that I will reign with him. Gives me the earth as an inheritance. You see, he loved us fully. And the extent to which you and I understand and behold this love is the extent to which we will actually be transformed by it and love as we were intended to. We must put on Christ by beholding his love in the gospel. As we wrap up, the fourth point, it's a posture with an eternal perspective. Verses 11 through 13 tell us that we know salvation is dawning. We as believers in this world are to have, in society and in culture as a whole, are to have a perspective that says salvation is coming. There is a kingdom to come. We are dual citizens, both here and in a kingdom that is breaking in right now. You see, the two errors that most of us will fall into, uh, on one hand, we will live in the, we will, we will, overrealize this kingdom now and we will live in the present. We won't have any regard or perspective for the future, for eternity. And we will say that this is all we've got. So we've got to get the right guy in office. We got to have the social, the, the right social reform and the right social programs. We got to have the right laws because there's nothing really coming, right? And then the other error though, is to say, um, we're just going to back out of this because I can't take any of that. And I'm just going to wait for heaven, right? But both of those are heirs because that's not how Jesus has come to love the world. The way Jesus interacted with his culture and with his society is in it, engaged in it, pointing people to the Father, the light in a world of darkness. But he knew that a greater glory was coming. He knew that a greater kingdom was coming. And so we must have a posture. If we are to put on Christ, we must have a posture of this eternal perspective. So let's not put on good behavior. That's tiring. Let's not put on nice programs or social reform or the right guy in office and figure all that out because they're going to fail us. Let's not put on whatever else culture tomorrow tells us will save us. What does it mean to put on Christ? To become the man, the son and the daughter that you and I were created to be by beholding his glory in the face of Jesus. 
Beholding a love so pure, so others focused, that it actually changes us and transforms us. Let's put on Christ by faith as we behold his great love for us on the cross. And that will radically change our society. Men and women who are living for the good of their neighbor will radically change society. So my prayer for you tonight is that you would behold that glory. That you would behold that love. So as our response tonight, just um, I want to take you through a, um, a poem that it's called Love Lusters at Calvary. Like if you and I want to see love, if we want to know the deep, intense love of God, we need to look at the cross. So Jake and the guys are going to come back up. I'm just going to ask you to just close your eyes and bow your head and, and just let me read this over you as we close. And Some of you might be here tonight and you've never experience this Logan. You would say, Logan, I, um, I am absolutely following this Christianity. I am absolutely living this life of religion in order to escape punishment. There's no actual desire. My motivation is, is strictly based on fear and I've never actually experienced this love. If that's you tonight, my plea is that you would, you would know that God has removed every barrier, that there is that fear is not the motivation he wants for your obedience. The motivation that he wants is that you would see how much he loves you, what he has done for you through his son. And maybe for the first time you're feeling that, you're hearing the spirit for the first time say, I loved you in this way that I gave my son. This is how love works. And some of you are here and you say, Logan, I have, I know for a fact I have surrendered my life to Christ. I have, I have experienced this new birth of, of beholding this intense love of God for me in Jesus but I'm not doing very well at loving my neighbor. May we put on Christ, hide ourselves in him through faith. And the more and more and more we look to the cross, may we be be changed by that. So I just want to invite you just to worship as you hear these words spoken over you. And then, and then we just want to respond in song that, God, we love you because you have first loved us. This is love. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. 
stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might forever live. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou might spare me. All this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. The very definition of love is the cross of Jesus Christ, where God himself considered not himself, but lived for our good. May this love change us to love our neighbor as ourselves. May we put on Christ as we leave this place.